Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what is going wrong and what is going right with the American news media. Welcome to the Ink Stained Wretches interview, a series that we hope to continue beyond my maternity leave and into the new year. My old friend, Alex Thompson, who is White House correspondent for Politico and the author of the much read, and if you don't read it already, the West Wing playbook newsletter, sign up. And we are so happy to welcome him now. Alex, welcome. And thank you for doing this. I'm so glad to be here. Alex, we are going to start off with the softballs. So tell us and our listenership, who are you? Where did you grow up? And how did you end up as a reporter? Um, so name's Alex. I grew up in Southern California, just like the, you know, the suburbs of LA, like Ventura County area. And I became a reporter sort of by uh, haphazardly and by guess and check. I basically graduated college in 2011, never having really done any journalism in high school or college and then grad and then basically just did a bunch of jobs for a few years now I, I'd grown up I'd grown up Mormon and like a pretty devout Mormon family and um, after I graduated college I had no job and was hired to be a researcher on a Mitt Romney biography because I had written my college thesis on the Mormon church and the Republican party. And it was 2011. So it was fitting times. And that was actually the first time I ever uh, broke any news, you know, Mitt Romney, there'd been this long rumored story that while he was a bishop in Massachusetts, there was a pregnant mother of four who was considering getting an abortion because of health complications. And there had been this rumored story that he had come into her hospital room and had pressured her not to get an abortion. And no one had ever talked to the mother before. And I ended up talking to her. And that was like my first time breaking some news. Eventually, once the book came out. Wait, wait, I, wait. So what happened? Did he pressure her or not? Yes, he did. And, and what was this book? What was the it was by this Mormon guy? His name uh, was R.B. Scott. Unfortunately, he's he uh, he passed away, you know, a year or two ago. But he he had served in in the same ward as Mitt Romney. And so had a bunch of this sort of like early Massachusetts sort of Mormon gossip about Mitt from like the 90s and the 80s. And that was sort of his in for this biography. And that and so, you know, I talked to the woman and for the first time, it ended up making the front page of the Sunday New York Times and a story where they cited the book. And then that was did sort of my the, did she get the abortion? She did. That I assume helped. Was this after the primaries or was this in the general? So this came out uh, in the general. Okay, so it was a net negative for Romney. Would have been a pop that, that tells you how timing of stories works. If that had yes. come out in the primaries, Romney would have been like, you see, yep. I am pro-life. And then it came out in the general was like, well, I apologize. <laughs> so there you exactly. go. Alex, we met in 20, it must have been early 2016. I remember in New Hampshire, on the primary campaign trail, you were then in the employ of the New York Times. 
as a research assistant for Maureen Dowd as a, I think a, a mid 20 something. So how did you land that job? I think my understanding is that is a much coveted gig. You you went to Harvard. You were as many Harvard graduates are. You're so modest. You didn't mention it. You didn't even say you went to school in Boston. But so how did how does one land a research assistant gig with Maureen Dowd? And tell us a little bit about what that was like. Well, I got the job very much by luck. In fact, the, the Harvard thing was was a. Uh, more a strike against me than a strike for me. You know, Maureen is a Catholic U grad, very proud and, you know, sort of came up in this era of journalism where all like the the Harvard and Ivy League grads were getting all like the the big jobs, the Washington Post and the New York Times. And I think she always prided herself on, you know, being like, you know, a, a Catholic U journalist, sort of a working class journalist. Uh, it came from a working class home. And so if anything, the Harvard thing hurt me. I did nine job interviews for that for that job. Um, I I because the way that Maureen does it, it's such an intimate job where you're just with her all the time that she actually has you interview with all of her friends. So I, I ended up doing interviews with Ashley Parker, who had had the job before me with her current assistant at the time with Maureen, with Alessandra Stanley, who was at the time the New York Times TV critic, with Adam Nagurney, who at the time was the LA bureau chief, with like a friend of hers. He he was the White House correspondent who had like a nasty exchange with Dick Cheney or Cheney pointed at him from- No, that was Adam Clymer. That was Adam Clymer. Okay, okay, sorry, I'm confusing them. Excuse me, continue. He called called, called him uh, a major major league a-hole and then Bush uh, looked at him and he said, big time. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I ended up I ended up even being late for that job interview because I was meeting with one of Maureen's like uh gay best friends who lived in LA and then he just like the interview went for like an hour and a half and then I ended up I felt impolite leaving early so then I was a half hour late to meet with Adam Nagurney in LA and, and then I met with like a friend of hers who had been like a I think he had worked on like the, the Carter campaign or the Carter administration who happened to live in California but like didn't live anywhere close to me Anyways, it was nine job interviews for whatever reason. I think in retrospect, the reason that she pro one of the reasons she hired me was because I was a fan. You know, I, I had been I had read all the old, you know, columns from the Lewinsky years, you know, the time when Monica Lewinsky had confronted her in the middle of Bombay Club and asked her why she was so yes. mean to her. And, you know, all the old like Bush, you know, Bush columns where they had, you know, the old court with like the old king and everything else, you know, so I was I was a fan and I knew politics because before in those intervening years, you know, I'd worked on a few campaigns. And so, you know, I knew politics and I was a fan of hers and I loved writing. And I think that's probably why she hired me. Who'd you work for? What campaigns? I worked for like this, you know, Democratic primary campaign, congressional campaign where I'm from in Ventura County is an open seat. And I worked for as like a regional GOTV director on the Obama reelect in 2012. And then I had also done some like door to like door to door voter reg where you're basically just like going from door to door. There's no micro targeting and trying to get people to register to vote at the door. And, you know, so and that was also in Ventura County. How did how did doing that? How did I'm always fascinated by this because a lot of people have have made the successful jump. Whether we you could take the Tim from Tim Russert to Dana Perini, there there are a, a number of journalists who had the. But you have much better hair than any of those people except <laughs> totally. for Dana Perino. And uh, uh, and we should say Alex was a 
Division one water polo player. I have like joked with Alex that, so he went to Harvard. He's incredibly smart. And like, one of the things that's always struck me about Alex is he's super well-read, but like interested in, he's not narrowly interested in politics, which, which I think is wonderful, but I'm always like, Alex, you know, people aren't supposed to be blessed with like this beautiful hair, beautiful body. Like God did not intend this. You should be like smart and ugly or, you know, very athletic and, yet, and stupid. And yet here he and yet is talking here we to are. us. And yet, and yet here, here he is with, for all of so, these blessings, so, you know, talking to you. ink-stained wretches. Yeah. But how, how did the brief period that you spent working in and around politics make it make you a better reporter? And how has it made it harder or more challenging? It's a really good question. I mean, I think the ways that it's that it's helped is that, you know, I just I've seen I've seen at least the campaign side, you know, I, I was never like on an upper echelon of a top tier campaign or anything. So I've never been in sort of those like strategy rooms of a presidential campaign, but definitely being on the ground. I think one is I, I probably have a little bit more empathy for like mm-hmm. the grueling part of the job. I think it means you can like be really still very tough, but you also sort of can understand how people, you know, people on campaigns have their own priorities and like their own things they're working on. And I think when you're talking to someone, you're like, hey, I get that you can't say this or don't want to say this or don't want to mess this relationship up. But can you do this? I also think, you know, like one example that comes to mind is since I was so field oriented, you know, during the campaign last year, you know, we wrote the first I wrote the first big story about how the Biden campaign was not doing any door knocking, whereas the Trump campaign was doing, you know, they were claiming, I think, like a million doors a week. And the most doors, people are saying the most doors ever, all of them. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, it was like this thing that was just happening, but organically because of COVID, but no one had really picked up on it. And I think because I had done some of that field work, you know, it, it, it has certainly helped me now in terms of, you know, how it, how it hurt. I mean, I think probably the biggest way it hurt is you know, I had no idea what I was doing when I came in to work, work for work for Maureen, who like suffers no fools. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't even know what TK was. And I remember the first time like Maureen put in there, like put a TK in it. I was like, what's TK? And the withering look she gave me uh, of like, death. you don't know what like I hired this guy. He doesn't even know what TK means. Tell, and- tell the non reporters listening what it what it, what it means when we write TK. TK means to come. It's something you basically insert into a story to say, like, I'm going to fill this in later. 700,000 uh, 700, copybaras uh, traveled from TK to TK. Yes, exactly. We'll, exactly. we'll fill that in later. And so basically, I mean, honestly, the first year of working for for Maureen was really hard because I didn't know what I was doing. And and that was really that was like just really difficult. And like, you know, it's it's you're learning trial by fire, which is, you know, the first time I had a correction, I still remember I I messed up, you know, if Obama was editor or president of the Harvard Law Review. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I still remember it so distinctly because later we had printed out the column and Maureen took out the page with the correction on it. And she uh, she pinned it right at my eye level, Ooh. and she was like, "So you never forget." And <laughs> oh, savage! I, I know. I'd only I worked there for three years, and I'm pretty sure I only had two more corrections the entire time. And uh, so, you know, it it was it was effective. <laughs> Alex, yeah, I bet. One thing I noticed because for 
it's still, I mean, to this day, but for a long time, the stars of conservative journalism and Chris, you know, came from Fox News. He knows this too. It was the George Wills and the Charles Krauthammers. And now it's like, you know, those it's opinion journalists who like lack their intellectual pedigree, but the Fox News types. And I found that when I talk to young kids, like they want to do opinion stuff and they don't understand that for you know, 99% of people, the road to opinion is through spending 20, 30 years doing reporting. And I'm curious, like, what did you learn? You know, how much reporting does Maureen Dowd do for an opinion column? And what are the other like two or three major takeaways you took from her? I mean, that's such a great point. I mean, people forget that Maureen was uh, a journalist, White House correspondent, you know, what, like a New York, uh, a New York reporter at the New York Times, like worked at the Washington Star way back in the day. Like she did the like she did reporting and she still does reporting. I mean, she still does even like arts and style pieces. But the one thing that you can see from her writing is that even as a columnist, it's still very reported. I mean, she still picks up the phone constantly. She's still constantly modern monitoring the news. She wants to know everything. I remember one, you know, one thing that she told me that I've always sort of kept to heart is that when you're writing a story, even if it's a column, you know, the first part is you're basically assembling a block of granite. So you're taking all the information you can possibly get. You need more information, not less. And then the writing part is you chiseling and then just taking the best bits and pieces, but you can't do that unless you actually do the real reporting and actually talk to as many smart people as you can, you know, you got, I mean, she still goes out and she'll like go out to, you know, dinner with senators. She'll go out to dinner with like media types. She'll constantly still be building and cultivating relationships. And because especially in this environment where everyone is a, is their own publisher, essentially, you know, opinion is really cheap. It's really easy I mean, I know it can go viral, but also it, you know, I, th- I think it's just like worth less. Like the thing that people are willing to pay for, the people that are willing to subscribe for, I think is new information. And if you can get that, that I think is like the coin of the realm. Uh, and the other thing, you know, and I, I remember I said this in my in a job interview, like while I still had that job, a job that I ended up getting was just the sheer dedication and time I mean, people like, you know, a lot of people don't like Marine. A lot of people love Marine. But like the sheer amount of time and dedication she spends on her craft, on writing. I think she even just put in a column recently that she's like getting, don't quote me that it's a master's, but she's getting like a degree in like literature from Columbia right now, just because she's still like trying to get even better. And, you know, that to me was something that, you know, I, I came in there, even though I didn't know anything about journalism, you know, I graduated from Harvard, like all these things, like I sort of thought I was hot shit. And like, you know, she very quickly disabused me of that. And I just saw how like, good she was and how great she was, and how much time she invested every single day. And I don't know, it like made me up my game and taught me a lot about like, that sort of constant work ethic. 
Well, and one of one of the things that and you know she is a great writer. She has an amazing. She has fingertips. She can when she when she blows you up, you are blown up, just as much as when she tacked up your correction in front of your snoot. When she when she roasts somebody, they stay roasted. And she has beautiful. You know, America will look back on the Maureen Dowd Peggy Noonan duel in the two big New York papers as a, a bunch of great columns. But I think you point to a good thing that is missing in our era of the reported column. Right. The reported column is you still see it sometimes, but most of what's happening is there's no granite being assembled. There's rubble being sifted through. And I try to when I write my columns, I try to remember that there is a lot to be said for saying, I'm going to report this out and I'm going to I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to bring it to you like a, a dog brings a dead animal to your front porch. Yeah, Alex. I mean, that that is she is sort of a, a callback to that era of the reported column and she yep. still does it. So, amen. Let's talk about Biden. I think it's fair to say that you quickly became one of the most trusted and respected chroniclers of the Biden White House. And I'm curious, uh, where do you think there's been really good coverage, either people covering the Biden White House or on particular issues, where has the press done a really good job? You're going to get me in trouble. So I, I would I, I first and foremost say that our, I'll, I'll first start with my own colleagues. I think obviously our White House team, I, I, I love them. And like, I think we've all done. And like, you know, a lot of, even though the West Wing playbook is very much sort of my creation, it is still like a sort of a team effort where, you know, if someone has a little bit of tidbit, I sort of bring them in and if you look at all the the bylines, I think everyone in the White House team has shared uh, a byline. Uh, what and, story are you most proud of in the Biden era? It's a good question. I think our health team's coverage of the Biden, I mean, like the, the story of the first Biden year, I think the predominant story is going to be about COVID and their response to it. And I think our health coverage has been excellent. We have a, yeah, I think, I think the largest team at Politico is our healthcare team. And they have just been on top of it from day one. I think also the you know sort of the the arc of COVID and the Biden presidency, which is really one of you know a little bit you know like a little bit of hubris, where I think P- Biden administration people will even concede now that they really thought they were close to beating this thing in May, June, early July, and that's why they you know, part part of the reason they embraced the masking guidance and part of the reason why they had an independence from COVID party, you know, on the White House lawn on July 4th. Now, if you read this speech carefully, you'll see that there's like all these little caveats because they some people could see Delta coming, but the thrust of it was the worst of it's behind us. And then, you know, Mother Nature and, you know, science, I think, has you know, as it's prone to do, has fought back. And now you're seeing a a, a case where we don't even know if the worst is behind us at, at this point. In terms of other people that have done excellent coverage, you know, I do think like to shout out to a few colleagues, I think, you know, Jeff Stein over at the Washington Post has done excellent policy coverage. I think Sung Min also at the Post has done really a good job at, you know, the Capitol Hill and the White House, the White House coverage 
you know, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, Hans Nichols and Jonathan Swan still continue to do great coverage. And there's plenty of people that I, I'm not mentioning, which is why I said you're, you're going to get me in trouble. Mm. Katie Rogers at the Times is, and Jim Tankersley over at the Times have done, have done great coverage. So those are a few. If you, anyone that's listening to this and we're friends and I didn't mention you, it's he just meant to include I, you. I meant to include you. And uh, it was they definitely just an oversight. It was um, our fault. Alex. What are what are some of the major debates like tearing the administration apart internally that you think haven't been haven't gotten enough attention, haven't been written about adequately? Like, I I feel like in the Trump administration, we constantly heard about like, oh, my God, this faction versus that faction. Like, uh, certainly. But we're hearing about Build Back Better. We know about the progressives versus Manchin. But what are the what are those what are the issues playing out like that inside the administration? I'd say the biggest one is immigration and the border, because it's one of those. I will say part of the reason why there isn't as much reporting on the clashes is because is for two reasons. One is that Biden's inner circle, most of them have known each other and worked with Biden for decades. There's a lot of built up loyalty there in that inner circle. And the second is that a lot of them are on the same page. Now, there are differences, especially on tactics. There are some bigger strategic differences which you can get into. But a lot of them, there's not as much, there is not as much disagreement internally over over the big stuff. And that you could argue that's also caused them to make mistakes with- Break uh, it down for us. Like, what is the disagreement over and who's on which side? Got it. So immigration- the biggest disagreement is that inside the White House and the administration, there are some people that think you should roll back, basically not just roll back all of Trump's immigration policies and border policies, but go much further. In fact, like you should actually be much more lenient than Barack Obama was because we should we should move towards open borders. I mean, that would be like, I think what the conservative frame of it would be. I think like the Democratic frame of it would be that we should be have much more humane immigration policy. But yes, I mean, a much more lenient border policy, I think, is what a lot of people inside the administration want. And they feel there are a ton of people in the administration that feel that the top of the White House, which they will always point out is a bunch of older white guys. You know, they feel that they are so scared of what conservatives are going to say, and they are so convinced that it's a losing issue for Democrats that they are sort of the, the top of the White House is trying to navigate this middle ground where they're doing just enough to say we're not Trump, but actually not doing that much difference. I mean, you look at it, you know, the the Title 42, the you know, the COVID health public health order is still in place. I mean, that's what's caused senior leaders to resign and leave the administration over this continued use of it. And MPP is still in place now that's going through court systems. There's reasons for that. But really what's going on is that the top of the White House is convinced that immigration is a political loser. And um, but the but, issue they fear or the position they feel they have to take on it or or like the progressive position on immigration yes, is a political exactly. loser. So who are the progressives lower down in the White House? Like, do these people do they have names? Like, are there is there is there a major advocate for that position? Well, I'd say most of them don't go out and publicly disagree with the administration. I would say that, you know, from talking to out external allies, certainly external allies feel that Ali Mayorkas, who's DHS secretary, okay. is more of an ally than, you know, the, the top tiers 
of the way, you more of an ally than Susan Rice, for example. Susan Rice okay. is very much a, a much more hawkish in the border. Believes there should be a much tougher border policy. And Susan Rice is, you know, head of the domestic policy council. And it's sort of, if you look at, at the personnel of the domestic policy council, it became clear early on that she wanted immigration to be a key part of her portfolio partly because of her past experience with foreign policy, there was some overlap where you could make it both domestic policy and immigration. She is much, she is very much the belief that you should have a strong border policy, have consequences. And the political, a lot of the political side at the top of the White House uh, agree with her position. Now, people like Mayorkas, you also had Harold Coe, who was a top advisor of the State Department, basically pen just a furious memo and semi-resign and protest. Now they sort of made it a cushy landing spot where he was like still had a position. So it wasn't a full resignation, but you know, he penned this memo and then sent it to like 25 people. So it was like an internal memo that like ultimately made its way to me and really blasted the administration for continuing this. You know, I'd say like Tony Blinken is also one of these people who is much more for a, a much more, lenient border policy, especially when it comes to refugees. But he's even, you know, that this came up in the last spring, you know, he's been overruled by Biden and and some of the the more, um, you know, re- restrictive people that that believe that like, listen, Americans are exhausted, they, you know, that this is not on the top of our political priority list. I think the progressives would say, listen, if you watch Fox News anytime, you're getting blasted for your border policies anyway. So like, it doesn't matter. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't, might as well, like, quote unquote, like, do the right thing. And it's a, you know, you're going to get hit no matter what. So anyways, it it is like one of those issues that, you know, the top tiers of the White House and the administration disagree with each other. And it's, I think it's one of those issues that especially now that there's not going to get any immigration reform through Congress, it's all going to re- all immigration is going to go through executive action, which means that these debates, I am very confident, are only going to get more contentious and brutal over the next year. And I would suppose that the histrionics from the press secretary regarding Joe Manchin and Build Back Better is uh, were part of an effort for it. It's it seems to me that we have an administration that knows that it is always the sword of Damocles is always dangling from the progressive left. When they look at this administration, there is real seething frustration on issues like immigration that you mentioned and others. And I, I felt like they were over swinging on mansion so that it could be like, Oh, we're, we're just as frustrated as you hippies are. We are shocked, angry. Oh, all this stuff, even though, whether it's immigration or build back better, there's probably some people in the White House who are relieved to have these issues, not have to be confronting these issues in that in that way going into a midterm. I mean, I could tell you that once the court the courts you know reimposed MPP, which is the Remain in Mexico program, there were sighs of relief yeah. in many parts of the White House because they can now just say like the courts made, but a lot of they they had already been thinking about is there a way to sort of do a remain in Mexico without calling it remain in Mexico? And to your point about you know Mansion and uh, you know that that was sort of an effective tactic. I mean, if you if you listen to Pramil Jayapal and AOC yesterday, a lot of the heat was directed towards Mansion, not towards Biden himself. So 
there, you know, when this White House gets angry, there is always a little bit of performance baked baked into it. In politics, I don't believe, Alec, I don't <laughs> believe that the White House press secretaries and communications officers of the White House would engage in cheap theatrics <laughs> in order to score political points. It's, I, I'll, I'll struggle with that. <laughs> Alex, uh, following up on, on Chris's question, I'm curious how you read the White House's uh, long diatribe that they issued over the weekend aimed at Manchin. It was so long that it seemed to me clearly not intended for public consumption. But what was the point of um, this? It, I mean, it must have been five pages, a five page long, like statement lambasting him. It clearly wasn't intended to get him on board. But what was that messaging for the left? I mean, I think some of it was some of it was that I also don't think you can underestimate how some of it was actual like authentic anger. This was not uh, this was not a dispassionate, you know, sh- like only strategy, only tactical decision. This, I mean, Manchin pissed them off. I mean, they were the the fact that that Joe Biden could not even get Joe Manchin on the phone before he made his appearance. The fact that Manchin's staff just let the White House know beforehand. You know, I, I think there was and then real... going on Fox News to break it was exactly. like really special. <laughs> that was like that was like kick them, kicking them when they're down. You know, like really, really. Uh... That was that was vicious. Yeah, I mean, you notice in the statement, they like twice were like when Manchin went on Fox, when he yeah. went on Fox, like they they made a made a point. Like, there's no reason for them to attribute the interview, but they they made sure to make it totally. clear that like he went on Fox and knifed us on live television and didn't even really give us a heads up. So I, I think, you know, with this White House suit, you know, it's sort of like a principle on down thing. You know, oh, Biden is not, you know, Biden is not Obama in this way. Obama was like, fair, like didn't really get riled up. Uh, you probably wouldn't see the Obama administration the Obama White House put out a statement like that. But Biden runs hot. You know, Biden has a temper. Biden does not also like being embarrassed, which is what Joe Manchin did to him on Sunday. I mean, that that was, I mean, it was embarrassing to have a, a senator uh, go on live television and just like kill your main legislative ambition and not even have the, you know, not even call you beforehand personally to give you a heads up. Have you observed a frustration with this administration and negative coverage? I think back to the, the Afghanistan coverage where there was really an obvious sea change in the coverage, right? There was the, and you, and you alluded to this earlier about the, the, the sunny uplands, the good days, right? We're coming back, shots in arms, checks in wallets, let's go. We're, we are lit. We are living our life. Uh, hot girl summer has come to the white house. <laughs> and the, the, the nature of the debacle in Afghanistan and however you thought U.S. policy, however one thought U.S. policy should be arranged towards Afghanistan, the the method of the pullout was sh- just a shambolic mess. And there seemed to be, maybe I'm uh, maybe I am getting this wrong, but what I picked up, you know, when when you read White House coverage, there's a lot of and your I like your coverage because it's straightforward. It's you can read it, you can follow it. It is not written for a for a, for a, a specialty product. It does not read like an insider high on their own supply read. It is accessible to the general audience and you really deserve credit for that. The, But there was a 
I sensed a feel a, a response from Team Biden that was, I thought you guys were on our side. I thought you guys were on our side. We got rid of the bad orange man, and here we are. And how can you say these sorts of things about us? Is that what it felt like when when you were in person? Yeah, I, I, to an extent, yeah. I mean, this this white hat. To an extent, yes. This White House really does bristle at negative tough coverage. I mean, there's a reason why the chief of staff at the White House was approvingly tweeting out that Dana Milbank column. Yes, which yes. which. Tell, tell know, our but, listeners what the Dana Milbank column was. So the Dana Milbank column essentially argued that the press was making a huge mistake because they were doing false equivalency between a pro-democratic party and an anti-democratic party. That essentially the lead should only- have been they should have been actually the press is much harder on Biden than they were on Trump. And I was like, yes. is this a oh, OK, go ahead. <laughs> that that is what they that that was the uh, the other main argument. The press is harder on Biden than they are on Trump, and the Biden the Biden administration does a lot of them really feel that they are trying to ins- reinstitute norms and they aren't getting credit for it, and they and they feel that there is this sort of performative false equivalency between the two parties, and they feel like. Listen, every time you I think there's some of them feel like by criticizing us, you're helping the return of Trump or you're helping the return of sort of these anti-democratic forces within the Republican Party. And, you know, the fact is that they don't just like say it quietly. They like and they tweet it out. They tweet out their frustration with the press and the press coverage. And which which is interesting. I mean, it's one thing to see about it privately. The doing it publicly is always interesting to me because. It either means one of two things to my mind. One is either you're trying to work the refs, which or and they all do. They all do. Or you're trying to or because you're frustrated and you and you're like venting. Yeah, I think there's a third possibility. Like it's not enemy of the people, but they think it's it's a good message. Right. Like for the Republicans, Trump was like, this is a great message. The press is the enemy of the people. The press is terrible. And I think like we hear we're hearing that from Biden. It's not as it's not the messaging isn't like turned up to 11, but it's like at a six, you know. It's a, I mean, I, I think that is right. I mean, the reason I thought the Dana Milbank column was so interesting and I, I didn't think the column was very good. And I think it wasn't scientifically rigorous. I mean, a lot of people have done that and said it was like bunk. Also, the, the idea that you can say that like the press has maybe been unfair to Biden on a few issues. I think you could make those arguments potentially. But the idea that like the coverage is more negative towards Biden than it was towards Trump. I, it was rank sophistry. It was the uh, worst kind of tendentious reasoning. It was a hot mess. I, 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 I would just respectfully disagree with with, <laughs> with, with with Dana. But the re- the reason I did think it was interesting though is to see how many Democrats agreed with him. You know, the that was what was more interesting to me is that there are a lot of Democrats that really feel this way. That really, and I think some of it to Eliana's point is like for, you know, there is advantage towards saying, don't trust the media, trust like these voices, trust like these influential voices. In some ways, it's so there are some similarities, I think, with what happened on the right over the last 20, 20 years. I mean, you're starting to see where people, you know, like, no, don't listen to them, like listen to Pod Save America, you know, or I think 
you know the the building you know progressive media spaces i think are 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 building in, in some ways and anyways that was sort of i don't remember what the original question was but that that was i think to your point there they are very defensive about tough coverage Alex, have you ever um, heard have you ever heard the joke about how politicians want to treat their political bases and then no. they want to treat them like mushrooms? You keep them in the dark and you cover them with horse manure. And that is what <laughs> me partisan outlets can do that mainstream outlets if you can if you can convince people not to read you, but instead to read to listen to Pod Save America. Don't listen to Alex. What does he know? But over here, Pod Save America, these guys have the straight dope, then yeah. I have two more questions for you, Alex. The first is, you know, covering the Trump White House, I found that there was this insidery talk among the press about what was really happening that never made it into print. I mean, some of it did, but a lot of it was like, okay, obviously this guy's crazy and, you know, this and that. And I wonder if there's a sort of like, I mean, what do reporters talk about amongst themselves about this White House that isn't in print? One of one thing we just touched on, which is like how sensitive they are about the press coverage, their lack of because I actually think with Trump, Trump was super sensitive about press coverage. But in the White House press shop, like they knew they were going to get pillaged or or, that's the wrong word. They knew they were going to get hammered and like they really accepted it. They they did not. They were not that hysterical about like Trump about the press attacking Trump. But I wonder, like, is there talk about Biden's mental state? I mean, clearly the guy is like in some kind of mental decline. What is, what is the press like? What do you guys do you guys talk about that at all? Or or what do you guys talk about that doesn't make it into print? I'd say, uh, well, I'm not I'm not going anywhere near the mental. D- d- I was going to say, stuff, I know it's a third but- rail, but like. No, no, no. So, but, but I will, but I will say that, like, I, I think the one thing that people do talk a lot about, which is just like, uh, it is like the lack, the lack of interviews, I think is something that people really are just like, he's done fewer than 20 interviews. You went adjacent to the mental decline, to the lack of interviews. <laughs> I mean, I think, <laughs> I think, I, I think, well, I think the fact is that like, you know, you watch him in interviews and he frequently the, the, it frequently requires a lot of cleanup afterward. I mean, he didn't do basically, I think any interview from Memorial Day through August. And he only did one because of Afghanistan. And then he gets, you know, just 15 minutes at George Stephanopoulos. And he's like, you he's like, we're, and then he promises that we're not going to pull out troops until all the American citizens are gone. Which, and nobody advised him not to pull out. And then the generals are testifying before Congress that, oh, actually, you know, we we said don't do this. Exactly. I mean, like the, the amount of like cleanup that was required because he did that, you know, I think I, I think people. I mean, he hasn't done an interview with The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Reuters, the AP, Bloomberg. He hasn't done any interviews with any of those sources, like his entire presidency, which is unusual. And, you know, people are just like now the the Biden folks will tell you that the reason is strategic, that like these places don't really matter as much as they think they do. Now, like, this is sort of a to, to give them access is more of like a norm and a tradition. I mean, they can both be true. Yeah, they yes. can be. I mean, that that's like there's like there's very little political payoff to doing interviews with these places. That's what they and and that, that can be true. Now, people are like. Well, maybe it's also that he just is going to 
you know, mess up all the time in, in the interview. And that's, that's sort of, I, I think, one of those things where, you know, reporters certainly t- talk a lot about like, well, why? And like the, this entire year until very recently, the amount of interviews that both he and Kamala Harris did were so small that it was just, uh, it was odd. The American political coverage has gotten larger in volume, but smaller in scope. The amount of coverage that it used to be the sort of the presidency and the administration, and then it comes down to the person of the president. And nobody fulfilled this like Donald Trump, right? He was, it was the role he was born to play, which was the heel as president and to the chorus of boos from the press and from everybody, right? Like, ah, he's the villain. And it was incredibly compelling, but ultimately personality driven coverage, right? It was the story of a man struggling to be president. It was the story of a man who was both a disruptor and a captive. It was all that stuff. It seems clear that Joe Biden is not well suited to personified coverage, right? And it, I think a lot of the coverage in the Trump era suffered because people weren't actually covering what the agencies were doing. There wasn't coverage of the action. It was always drama, always personality. Talk a little bit about how you see, you have a very specialized role, right? You have a very specialized job. You are like in the inside of the inside, but obviously you're aware of how it fits into the larger scope. How should we as news consumers and journalists be thinking about the coverage of the presidency. How should it be different? How should it be better? Well, as someone that's, this is really the first White House I, I covered, I, I hesitate to like give advice to how how things should be, you know, give advice about how things should be better. I will say, you know, one thing about the personification of the coverage, you know, part of it is because, you know, Biden, I mean, Biden is sort of like a cor- like a corny old like sort of boring guy. So he doesn't lend himself to like great drama. I also think there was a concerted strategic decision to try to like be the inverse of Trump. Yep. Right. And and that there was political advantage and not having drama all the time. Now, the disadvantage potentially is that if you leave an information vacuum, other things can fill it. But there was there was certainly uh, I mean, I don't think Biden lends himself to personified coverage, to your point. But also, I think there was a strategic decision of like, keep this focus on the issues, you know, make it sort of make Washington boring again uh, yeah. as 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 much as you can. Success. Uh, <laughs> I wish 10 out of 10. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, no way. I wish, you know, I guess in ter- the one thing I will say, you know, not to completely dodge your question about what things can be better. I mean, the one I'll say like the one thing that does uh, bother me a little bit, and I think it, it you know, happened a little. It, there was so much temptation during the Trump years to sort of take the bait of, you know, the enemy of the people fight. I just think like some re- I think I think sometimes reporters can get into this this tendency to take themselves too seriously. Preach and take you know your reporter. You're not you know the 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 la- I mean they, I think they they take the the whole thing of the fourth estate and last line of defense of democracy and yada yada and like you know uh, your reporter and like you should be tough and fair, but like don't take yourself too seriously and um. 
you know, there's, I mean, people taking themselves too seriously in Washington is like, you know, been, been the <laughs> right. epidemic of Washington. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but I think it affects reporters as much as it affects people in government. And I, I think you should just not, yeah, just take yourself too seriously. And also I wanted to circle back because I totally dodged your question before Eliana about the, the mental state thing. And the reason I did was because, you know, it is a sensitive topic but like obviously it was brought up during the democratic primary which everyone forgets i mean cory booker and julian castro you know made comments about it and then you know don't talk about it anymore and you know i mean i'll, I'll be honest like you know sometimes like a after certain things you know i definitely ask i definitely ask white house aides like hey like you know it is you know i i i ask you know sources about it and you know, if I had ever gotten, but I will say if I'd ever gotten an answer from any of them, now maybe it's possible that they're lying, but if I'd ever gotten an answer from White House aides being like, you know, oh, you know, he's, he's, he's struggling or blah, 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 then I would have reported it because I do think that's really important. I do think like, you know, I think a lot of people probably have regrets about not being more aggressive in the coverage of Reagan's mental state. And I think like the, the mental state of presidents is like is a fair game issue. Now, I do think it's like a sensitive one in which you should not speculate without reporting. And the reason I sort of shied away from it was because I don't have any reporting that he's that he has a problem. That being said, it is like a very newsworthy um, topic that I do ask about because it it you should be aggressive. Alex, my last question for you. Uh, it's it's hardly like a you know easy last question, but it's about Kamala Harris. I mean, where do we even start? I wonder if you can talk a little bit about her team and the dynamics of play here, which do seem to lend much lend themselves much more to personality driven coverage. I mean, what's what is going on? You know, open ended question, but go. Well, I first emphasize that you know two of my colleagues, Chris Catalogo and uh, yeah, Eugene Daniels and Daniel Lippman, we've done some like so did some of the first staff dysfunction coverage all the way back in June. So I just wanted to give them a quick shout out. Yeah, I uh, agree because they they've been they've been on top of it. Chris Catalogo, you know, some people we'll link we'll link some of their pieces in the show notes. Yeah, and and you know he's covered her since you know the California days when you know, someone joked that he's like basically written the same story of these like his entire career has been like writing a Kamala staff dysfunction story which is like, not an insult it's like you know she's the constant in all this that she is which is you know I think is the potentially I mean I think some people who have been considering going into I know some people that have you know been considering whether or not they'll they should apply for jobs and Harris's office, they see it as sort of like a, a a low risk, high reward situation because no one's going to blame you if it doesn't get better. But if it does get better, then you're then you're going to be great. I mean, the, the fact is, like, it hasn't gone well. You know, I think that by Bi I think Biden, Biden himself does really like Kamala. And the reason for that really goes back to uh, Biden's late son, Bo. Now, Biden is still very much in the process, honestly, of grieving for Bo. He probably will be till the end of his life. Yeah. And the fact is that Bo made a special point of saying, I really like Kamala Harris when he was alive. And if you're Joe Biden, there's no bigger endorsement. And so I think Biden always sort of goes back to that. Now, the principal level, the relationship is like fine. Below that, it has been a huge mess, which is why, I mean, it's why you, the, the amount of like crossed wires and everything else has been bad. I mean, every, everything from like her going on local West Virginia television to sort of like pressure Joe Manchin 
which after that, you know, the regional press secretaries in the White House, I can tell you, they were like told like, you are not to do anything related to West Virginia without looping in everybody. And, you know, even, and, you know, then her going to the, the cross, the cross wires on like the border situation, Northern Triangle versus the border. And, you know, I think there has been a, a, a lot of poor communication between the vice president's office and the White House with, I think both sides, both sides and in, in cases feeling, you know, grieved. I think a lot of Kamala's allies feel that she's been giving, given a no win portfolio and feel like she has basically been given a lot of political losers. Whereas like people with other, with also with presidential ambitions, like Pete Buttigieg have like gotten really great portfolios. And, you know, I can tell you that like, you know, over the first year, there are people in the White House that openly talk about like Pete is more of a natural successor to to Harris. And, you know, and like if I'm hearing that, I can guarantee you that people in Harris's office are hearing it. Yeah. And that adds to the resentment there. And the Biden people. The problems is, is the problem with her and her management a communication problem or is there a bigger problem with Kamala and her executive leadership skills? And if so, what is that problem? How do people describe it? That's interesting. I think sometimes her staff don't know what she wants. Like there's not necessarily a clear direction. You know, it's all, ta- it, sometimes people describe it as like, it's all tactics, no strategy. And so when you have that, people sort of like start guessing what you want. And then people guess different things. And also people want different things and want to steer you towards a certain path. And I think that's what ends up sort of this vacuum of clear direction, I think leads to is sort of the the underlying problem that leads to all these like the 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 symptoms of staff clashing and staff leaking and all these other all these other things. I would say like that's the thing that I hear most consistently from people who have worked with her in the past. And, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, also she's, she's incredible. And this is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, she's vice president of the United States, but she's very risk averse too. And so when things start going poorly, I think sometimes it's difficult to course correct because, and you're seeing, I mean, you are, you know, it's been, almost 11 months. And for the first time, you're actually seeing her do like a lot of interviews over the last two weeks. I mean, now she's done the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal. You know, she did Face the Nation. She did Face the Nation. That'll be on this Sunday. I mean, that was, you know, I think to get to that point took a lot of, you know, it was like a big shift. And, you know, she brought in all these new people to sort of help with that. But I think they recognize that the last year didn't go well. And they'll they'll be loath to admit it's sort of like a reset, but there definitely is a pivot. This is my real last question. Several people who have covered her have noted, and we've seen it show up in articles, have noted the reflexive response from her office to criticism is that criticism of Kamala is a result of racism and sexism as a on the part of the people making the criticism and then on the part of the press for covering the criticism. Oftentimes in the press, I see like statements of fact that 
And of course, she's subject to unprecedented racism and sexism, as opposed to coverage that this is a response by her office that is like a reflexive fallback. And I'm curious, like what your take is on this. Like, do they fall back on this too much? How should the press handle this sort of response? I realize like it's a super tricky issue. It's complicated. It's obviously like really hard to assess objectively, but it does kind of rankle me to see in articles just like the objective as a statement of fact, as opposed to an attribution to her team that, oh, of course, like this is, you know, she's subject to just unprecedented racism and sexism when in fact she's like broken all these barriers and, and like, is she, I mean, I don't know. Interesting. I mean, I think, you know, to the last point, like her team would probably argue that she like broke those barriers sort of in spite, you know, the impediments that come from like being a woman and a person of color. I think I think sure like my point is it's it's open to debate like I I think you're I think your point about it being complicated and tricky is why you have a lot of reports that just sort of say it right is because to explore the issue and to like and to try to you know do a nuanced look at like you know, what is what is like criticism that come that has like parts of it that are sexist and racist and what's criticism that's just like legit. I certainly commiserate with you because it's hard when you're a reporter because as your first answer, I think, captures the whole a thing. A reporter of, of little pallor. Is a person of pallor. That is true. You are a person of pallor. Uh, so, so much so that you uh, were raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Right. That's, that's, <laughs> That's double pallor. But the the truth is, you know, look, this is the I'll say something and you don't have to comment on it. A press operation that chooses as its defense for someone who wants to be president, that it's the jobs are too hard, that they're giving us the bad jobs is not is not an effective press office. Right. Because the last thing that you would ever say about somebody who wanted to be the next president of the United States was, but they gave us all the poopy ones and they gave the good ones to Pete. How come they gave the good ones to Pete? That's just, that's not good positioning. But I certainly take, I think your first answer hit home with me. Rooted in the facts, back to Maureen Dowd. Report it out, find the stuff, say the things that are true. Don't say the things that aren't true. Debunk the things that aren't true and leave the subjective stuff to idiots like me. And that has sort of been my approach with Harris's office is that I've, Basically, like, I know that that pushback might come, but if the facts are solid, then that's all that really matters. And, you know, I mean, and people, I mean, anytime you, I mean, every reporter knows that if you report on Harris, there's anything even remotely critical in there, sort of the K-Hive Twitter mob mm-hmm. will will suggest that she's getting a bad, you know, she that that part of this is motivated or a consequence of racism and sexism in America. And, you know, I think, I mean, there is potentially merit to some of that. And certainly I do think there has been some racist and sexist coverage of Harris. But if you have your facts down and they're inconvenient, then that's all that matters. And to, at least to me, and to your point about, you know, we have the bad portfolio, you know, I think some of the Biden, I, I know some Biden allies will say like, 
listen, when he was vice president, yeah, you know, he was given the Recovery Act and the Iraq withdrawal at the and, very uh, beginning. And totally he was tasked fun. with curing cancer. Right. Yeah, exactly. He? Just the like, easy stuff. There were a lot of I mean, in 2009, with a bad economy and like lots of potential problems that could arise from the Recovery Act I mean, and the Iraq withdrawal. And you could argue that like, you know, there, I mean, there are clearly mistakes on, on both, but like those those had a lot of potential political pitfalls to them. Um, and, you know, he took them on. And I think some Biden now is just like, you know, like grab, you know, you may not like the Northern Triangle countries and maybe it's inconvenient, but having like your allies, you know, go go out and whine about it isn't helpful. And no. Alex, before we let you go. Yeah. I can't let our listeners continue their lives without hearing a clip from your appearance as a youth on the tonight show What with, with Jay Leno. Alex, were you 13? Yes, I was, I, I was 13. It was right before freshman year of high okay. school. Well, we are going to link this in our show notes too and share it on our social media. But Alex demonstrated his talents early in life, his ability to jump rope with his arms. All right, go ahead. Let's see you jump rope. Just once. Uh, go ahead, let's see. You got, uh, well, do it once first, and then we'll, we'll try it then. Show me one. Okay. Obviously, you need to see this. So click in our show notes, follow us on social media, and follow Alex on Twitter. Alex, what is your Twitter? It's Alex Tomp, T-H-O-M-P at Alex Tom and sign up for West Wing Playbook. So hold on. You could knit your hands together and jump over your own arms. Yep. And then do it all and then bring them all the way around my body without disconnecting my hands. It's are you so double amazing. are you double jointed? Yeah, it's like double jointed and like I think another term was like hyperflexive. And I don't do it anymore because it it can like hurt now. But I use yeah. I mean I did it like 10 times in 30 seconds on the show. Are you an X-Man? Is that what you're trying to tell? A, a Ivy League water playing, double jointed, uh, former Mormon. I mean, you got a lot going in there. You got a lot going in there. <laughs> I, I I wish I really peaked peaked early. I feel uh, <laughs> with it with the J with the Jay Leno experience. It was one of those things where I like I I was so proud of myself that I could do it. I actually like submitted a tape and just mailed it to them. That is so great. And in the hopes that like and my mom, my mom was like humoring me. She's like, okay, sure, sure. And then sure, all of honey. a sudden, like Jay Lena, the Tonight Show is sending like a limo to my house and like having us on. <laughs> Great. How amazing the uh, day just that, that once in, in history, once in your life, a guy in a room somewhere was like, guys, I got a tape of a kid from Ventura who can jump rope his own arms. Get him. That's right. Uh, amazing. Uh, Alex, thank you. Hey, thanks so much, guys. 